Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a church that relies on it, concerns itself with what it says, and endeavors to live according to it. And thank you, Father, that as we study a man of Abram this morning and consider all that you promised him, we are reminded that by faith you have grafted us into these very same promises so that we may share in the same blessing that you extended to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 15 of Genesis. As we reach this chapter this morning, we find Abram doing effectively three things. He's wandering, he's worrying, and he's wondering all at the same time. He's still wandering in the land. That's been his practice now since he was brought into the land back in chapter 12. He goes from here to there as God directs, trusting in God to provide an inheritance in this land that he is currently occupying. And as he moves around, he grows. He's grown spiritually through trials and through errors and through blessing as God has extended it to him. His most recent wandering was, I guess, really a pursuit. This was the most recent story we studied in the last chapter where he is seen pursuing the kings that have come into the land chasing them north and back to their home, defeating them as we studied last week, rescuing his nephew Lot. And by that experience, we noticed that Abram showed great trust, great strength in his willingness to rely on God and God's provision. He first thanked God for giving him this great victory, and he did so through a tithing to Melchizedek. And then he showed that he was completely and fully trusting and dependent in God by turning back all the spoils of that battle. He had in his possession the wealth of a lifetime. He had the potential, if he had chosen to do so, to become king of Sodom and rule that entire region without anyone questioning his leadership and his rule. He could have lived off that wealth forever. And he gave all of that back to the king of Sodom, saying he preferred to have nothing from any man, lest they claim to have made Abram rich. But rather... He was content to rely exclusively on the promises God had made to him. That's a lot of strength. That's a lot of maturing in a man who's just recently been called into faith. But Abram's bold move to subdue those kings brought a new concern for him. And this is where he moves from wandering to worrying. He should naturally expect that these kings who have been forced out of the land, but yet not dead are going to make a return visit. They're going to regather their forces, they're going to come back into the land, and they're going to teach this upstart Abram a lesson. And that's what he's expecting at this stage. They may have been beaten once, but they still vastly outnumber him. And it was only natural, therefore, for Abram to fear, to worry, that what has happened is not the end of the story. There'll be something yet to happen which will threaten him. And so he imagines he will be harmed at some point. He sits, he worries, And in the midst of that worry, God appears. Look at verse 1. You'll notice it begins after these things, referring back to the events of chapter 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So there's your worry addressed by the reassurance of God. Abram is told that he shouldn't fear. The Lord, he says, will be his shield. Interestingly, that word shield in Hebrew is also mistranslated in some cases as star. And ironically, and through some strange machinations we don't have time to go into this morning, this phrase, I am a shield to you, has become the term star of David. 
mistranslated shield into star and moved to David rather than to Abram. But that's what God is saying to Abram here. I am your star, your shield, your representative, your barrier to evil. In fact, Abram has nothing to fear, for the Lord will not only protect Abram, we're told, but will also bless him as he has promised. So now here's the turning point in chapter 15. God appears to a worrying Abram to set his mind at ease and reminds him that not only will he protect him, but he will bless him, which in Abram's mind gives rise to a third concern. While he was at once wandering and then worrying, now God says, I will bless you, and Abram thinks, well, wait a minute, I have some questions about that. And he begins to wonder. He begins to wonder when God is going to fulfill this promise that he has made to Abram now on several occasions. The promise God made to Abram back in chapter 12 and repeated in chapter 13 and now about to be repeated again here in chapter 15 is that when Abram left Ur, he would do so to find both an inheritance in a new land that God would show him and that he would receive an heir. That's been what Abram's heard from the beginning and he's been holding on to that promise from the moment God introduced himself. In fact, in the second instance of that promise, God made even clearer to Abram what he meant by heir. He said, you would have nations come from you. Your descendants would be so numerous, they would be like the sands of the seashore. But Abram isn't getting any younger. Who is? And Sarai is long past childbearing years, according to Scripture. So while Abram is confident in God's promises concerning the inheritance, the land, he's starting to wonder whether the guarantee of an heir was still on the table. Maybe God had put that one aside. You may have noticed that since chapter 12 began the story of Abram when we were introduced to these promises, from that moment, the focus of Moses' narrative in the story of Abram has been on God's promise concerning the inheritance. Have you noticed that? The land, the entry into the land, the wandering around the land, the famine forcing him out of the land, but then he comes back, then the king's trying to take, and then Abram going and getting, and then Abram giving it back. It's all with respect to the material inheritance under that promise that God gave Abram. But starting now in this chapter and going all the way to the conclusion of the story of Abram, Moses' narrative moves to the second half of the promise, and the story of Abram now is entirely focused on the promise of a seed, of an heir, of the family line. Look at verse 2. Abram, now beginning to wonder, says to God, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. This is such classic response to God's timing. You've probably heard it said that God's, God will often take longer to answer our prayers than we would prefer, and yet His timing is always perfect. Have you ever heard that phrase or something like that? He takes longer. He doesn't give you what you want when you want it, but His timing is always perfect. There's an element to God's timing that's beyond our understanding. And that sums up the problem with our perspective in trying to judge God's faithfulness. If you and I find ourselves at times questioning God's faithfulness, which in a sense is what you hear Abram doing here, in a sense, it's probably because we forget that timing is entirely from God's point of view, and it rarely meets with our expectations. We know he is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. And yet, when too much time passes between when we come to know of a promise or of an assurance and when it's finally brought into reality for us, when too much time passes, we begin to doubt. 
And we do so for the obvious reason. Because we know men often make promises to us. Men and women, people. And if too much time passes after a promise is made, we begin to doubt the promise will ever be kept. That is human nature. Because men change their minds. Men disappoint. Men forget. Men are dishonest. That's the world we live in. There's a German proverb that says, Promises are like the full moon. If they are not kept at once, they diminish day by day. There's a truth in that, isn't there? The longer time goes from the moment a promise is made, the less likely we feel it is to be kept. But God does none of those things. God does not change his mind, Scripture says. God never disappoints. God does not forget. And knowing that about the character and nature of God we can be assured that his promises are no less certain even after many years have passed by than they were in the moment he gave them because he is unaffected by the passage of time. He lives outside it. He owns it. He controls it. He's the author of it. So there is no way that something in the course of time can act on God and thus change his perspective and make his promise null and void. So as we start chapter 15 of Genesis... You're looking with me here at one of the most important chapters in Scripture. So it's important to remember that Abram here is a man of faith, but also, at times, a man of doubts, of worries, of wondering. He has faith. The Scripture testifies to that. He knows God can deliver. He's shown already a willingness to trust in God. And he lives that faith, as we've seen all the way through chapter 14. But he has doubts. He has doubts concerning the promise of an heir. And God in his mercy goes an extra step here in chapter 15 to assure Abram that his promise for a seed will come into fruition. Look what Abram says. Abram makes his case here before God. He says that as it stands right now, God, were I to die today, this wonderful inheritance you keep promising me, this wonderful thing I'm going to have, it's just going to fall to one of my servants at the end of the day. Built into this conversation is this subtext from Abram. He's saying, it's a wonderful thing that you give me all these promises of wealth and of an inheritance and of this land and so on. But what good does it do me when it goes to some other family at the end? Abram says, it's going to go to a servant born in my house. That was the law of the day. According to the customs of that time, if there was a patriarch or father that had no son of his own, no children of his own, then when he died, the inheritance of the estate fell to the oldest child born in his house to some servant in his home. Eleazar, being the senior-most child born in his home, now stands in the line of inheritance. But it becomes another man's property. It leaves Abram's name and goes into another man's name. That's what he's facing. And so he raises that concern with God. This is the first time in the story of Abram where we see Abram actually engaged in a dialogue with God. If you go back and look at the earlier chapters, it's a one-way conversation every time. In this case, you see Abram receiving a vision and communicating with God in the course of that vision. And he approaches God here very boldly, seeking answers. Look at how he makes his appeal. I don't want you to miss this because we are in a position now through Christ to make bold appeals of our Father in heaven. But look at how Abram does it. He places God's own promises before him and he expects God to respond according to his character. Children do this really well with parents, have you noticed? If you're a parent, you've seen this. You go to your parent and you say, you told me we could do this or that, or I could have this or that. And I'm waiting for it, and I haven't forgotten it, and I know you may have forgotten it, but I'm here to remind you, you said, Dad, you said we could do this. Aren't kids really good at remembering those things? 
bringing them back to mind right when they need to? Now, why does a child do that to a parent? To shame the parent? To indict the parent? Not usually. Their expectation is, dad or mom said this, and if I point it out to them, I know them. They will do it because I know they want to do the right thing by me. They just haven't done it for some reason. It's assumptive. They assume that pointing out to the person who made the promise that it is yet to be fulfilled will be the thing to cause it to be fulfilled. That's Abram's approach here. And folks, that's how we ought to pray. That's a good model for prayer. Appealing to God, asking Him to act according to His own word in keeping with His character as a promise-keeping God. Think about Moses. I'm just having this thought on the top of my head. Remember in the desert when Moses tells uh, God, don't kill the nation of Israel out here in the desert as you have threatened to do because it will besmirch your character and name among the nations. They will say you led them out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert. Don't do that to your holy name. It's interesting how he appealed to God on the basis not of their deserving to be alive because that would have been a hopeless case, but rather on God's character being worth the trouble that the Israelites were giving him. That's how God has asked us to come to him. Knowing him and his word taking him at his word and appealing to his character as a covenant-keeping God. So how does God respond? Verse 4. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Remember I said back in chapter 13, in the second time God spoke to Abram, he had told Abram that his descendants would be so numerous they'd be like dust. This one now says stars of the heavens. The next one he'll give him later will be that his descendants will be as numerous as sands on the seashore. He uses three different pictures of how innumerable his descendants will be. The word for descendant, by the way, here, both here and back in chapter 13, is zerah in Hebrew. Why is that important? Because that's the word for seed. God said specifically, Abram, you will have seed. He said it here, but he said it back in chapter 13 as well. But somewhere along the way, since God told it to Abram in chapter 13, Abram's begun to doubt as to whether or not the fulfillment would come through some other person, through a servant. He's forgetting. He's already been told. It was a seed. It would be your body, not some other way. So God here graciously repeats himself, just like we have to repeat ourselves to our kids. Sometimes God will repeat himself to us. And God gives Abram here this assurance. Abram will get the chance to have a child from his own body. But look how he does it. This vision must have taken place in the tent at night. And then in the course of the vision, God says to Abram, why don't you get up and come outside for a minute? I want to show you something. And as Abram leaves the tent, God tells him to look up at the night sky. Now, most of us live in cities today. And as a result, many kids, my own included, have grown up largely with a complete lack of appreciation for what a night sky looks like. It's a sad thing, isn't it, that so many kids now grow up without the faintest understanding about what a night sky looks like in the middle of nowhere. If you go camping or if you get out in a rural area, then you can begin to appreciate it. I've been camping in the high mountains in New Mexico and Colorado, and if you get that far away from cities and at that altitude, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you walk outside the tent, your eyes are all fully adjusted to the dark, it's 2 a.m. or whatever, and you stare up at the sky, it's a shock. It doesn't look real. It looks like a movie, like special effects. 
you could see galaxies with the naked eye. If you've never been in that situation, I would encourage you to find a way to do it before you die. It's stunning. And that's what ancient man saw any time they looked up because there was no light pollution to take it away. That sky was the sky that Abram saw. Galaxies, planets, stars so numerable you couldn't hope to count even a small square inch of the space you could see up above. And if you've had that experience, you can easily understand Abram's perspective as he stepped outside that tent and as he heard God's words while he gazed into the vastness of that, of that universe. God said to Abram, try counting the stars. He must have chuckled at that moment. And that's when God says, if you can. He says, that's how your descendants will be. Try to imagine your reaction to hearing that promise while you're faced with that kind of a panorama. The glory of the universe on display before your very eyes. Everywhere you look, stars. In fact, even in spots that are so dark where you think there's no star, if you stare at it just for a brief second or two longer, the stars that are there start to appear because they're a little dimmer. You realize there's no end to them. And God says, as you appreciate the impossibility of counting these many stars, you should understand you'll have no fewer descendants And this is a man, Abram, who is already too old to have kids. A wife too old to have kids. A man who has had decades of marriage and has yet to see a single child come out of that marriage. And he's staring at more things than he can count. And he's hearing God say, that's how many children will come out of your family life. Now, how do you respond when you hear such a thing? How do you put the incongruity of infinite numbers with a reality of not a single child having been born yet. What do you do? Do you ask questions? For example, wouldn't you turn to God in that moment after you've seen this display and say to him, how can this happen? How how do I get from here to there? Why hasn't it already happened? That would be a good question. Why not yet then? Or will it be Sarai or will it be through some other woman? That would have been a good question to ask because it turns out later that was an important detail. How long before the first child comes? Maybe just that kind of a question. Oh, how long do I have to wait? Wouldn't you ask something? Or maybe you doubt. Do you consider the awesome expanse of this universe displayed before you and then reflect on your body's own weaknesses and your failure to have even one child up to this moment and you put those two facts together and you step back and you say, I don't think so. It just doesn't seem possible, God. Are you sure? That would have been the natural thing to do. What does he do? In verse 6, we're told, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is arguably the most important verse in the Old Testament, and more than a few commentators have said it's the most important verse in the Bible. In that one verse is the gospel. In that one verse is the plan of the cross. In that one verse is confirmation that God has always been the same God and saved always the same way. In that one verse is the end of all works unto salvation. Abram, we're told, believed. What did he believe? He believed the Lord's promise to make Abram a man with descendants too numerous to count. And because Abram believed that promise concerning his future, God credited Abram's faith as righteousness. There's actually a play on words there in Hebrew, which is very interesting. If you were to read that in the Hebrew, literally, you'd miss it, of course, in the English. But what he's told to do is count the stars in Hebrew, count. And yet he couldn't count them because there were too many. 
So God counted his faith as righteousness. So in the Hebrew, he said, can you count? No, I can't count. Okay, well, I'll count that as righteousness. What Abram could not do, that is count. And yet he trusted God nonetheless, though he couldn't do what he needed to do. Therefore, God did the work of counting by counting Abram righteous for his faith. It's an illustration of how we cannot do by work something that earns God's favor. But our faith and trust in God to do the work he says he will do is what allows us to be counted as righteous. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So for the first time in scripture, we have in a single verse the concepts of belief linked with justification and righteousness. That statement is so foundational to all that we understand about how God works to save men from sin that we could preach weeks on this verse. I won't do that. But it is that important. Abram was following God. We've already seen Abram's walk with God. We've seen him following God. But what have we also noticed about Abram up to this moment? He is imperfect, is he not? He went to Egypt against God's will. He lied concerning his wife when he reached Egypt and spoke to the Pharaoh's men. This man is not perfect. He's made mistakes. That imperfection, those sins, separate him from where God is in his perfection. It distances Abram spiritually from God. This is not new. It began with Adam. And it's been the story of Genesis ever since. With each new generation, with each new period of human history, as the Bible has been explaining it to us, we see the same pattern. Men are falling into sin left and right. Even the first two kids from the first man, one killed the other. Abram is no different from the rest of those men. One day he might obey better than another. One day he obeys a little less than another. But the problem with our lives, and Abram is an example in this case, is with the word righteousness. The problem is that word. It means right without error or perfect. That's what the word literally means. That's the problem. No one may approach the Father. No one may be in his presence. No one may enter into heaven, in other words, unless they meet that standard. That's the problem. The problem is perfection is the standard, righteousness. And Abram was far from perfect. But if he was to be righteous, he must be perfect. But here we see God declaring that Abram was counted. Some of your Bibles probably say reckoned. In Texas, that works really well. God reckoned him. He was righteous, right? He was reckoned or counted to be righteous. Now, actually, I need to be very specific here because what I just said is actually not 100% accurate. Because Abram was not declared to be righteous. The Bible never says that. He was not declared to be righteous. Instead, God gave Abraham righteousness on another basis. Abram was not righteous on his own. He was considered to be. He was counted as. He was reckoned as righteous. That's a huge difference. That's all the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. One of the foundational beliefs in Catholicism is that by our faith in Christ, we are made to be righteous. We are made to be more perfect in our everyday life. We become perfect. And Unless we become as perfect as Christ, meaning sinless, we cannot enter heaven. And so that's where purgatory comes from in their theology. They believe that everyone dies somewhere short of that perfection, 
And so we have to make up the difference by spending some time in purgatory before we can enter into heaven. So their goal is to do as much good work as they can to minimize their time in purgatory. That's a gospel of works. That's not the gospel that we're given in Scripture. That's why Scripture says he was counted as righteous, reckoned to be, not actually become righteous. And he gave it to him on the basis of faith, because Abram believed God's word concerning his promises. Look what God said. God made a promise concerning descendants, but it was an impossible promise. Abram and Sarai couldn't produce a single child in decades of marriage. Now he was supposed to believe that God was going to produce an innumerable number of descendants. By definition, that's an impossible thing to believe. Nevertheless, Abram took God's promise as truth and accepted it. That means Abram started living as a man who expected an innumerable number of descendants even before he had one child. He accepted that future as truth. That's the definition of faith. You probably know from your studies already in the letter written to the Hebrews that there is a very succinct definition of faith in that letter in chapter 11, right? Many of you know the part I'm talking about, chapter 11, verse 1. It says just this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Some people, when they study that, are a bit surprised to find that the word Jesus is nowhere in the definition of faith. Or the word gospel is nowhere in the definition of faith. Don't you have to believe that? Isn't that what saves you? Well, yes, but that's not the definition of faith. According to Hebrews, the definition of saving faith involves both an object of faith and the content of our faith. Object and content. The object of faith is always the same from Adam all the way to you and I today. It's always been the same. What's our object of faith? The object of our faith, the thing we have faith in, is a promise from God. We have faith in a promise from God. That's the object of our faith. By that faith, we are saved. But for Abram, let's talk Abram for a moment, the foolish promise that he received was that a multitude of descendants, which he had even yet to bear a single one, would come from him naturally through his own seed. Now, the only way you would accept such a ridiculous promise is if you had faith in the one making the promise. So his faith lay in God, in God's power, in God's faithfulness, not in his own body, certainly, but in God. The object of his faith was a promise-keeping, all-powerful, trustworthy God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul says that by definition, the things God promises and says to us and declares to be truth are foolishness if they are appraised or understood solely by the flesh, by the humanity of man. Only if by the Spirit's revelation can we come to believe what God has told us in his word. That's how Abram came to believe. Now, what is the content? Well, the content of the faith is the specific promise that God reveals to each individual person over the course of history during the time of his revelation. As history has moved forward from the day of Adam, God has progressively revealed more and more of his plan for salvation. That content has grown. What did he tell Adam? You remember chapter 3 of Genesis? The proto-evangelium, that fancy term for the first gospel being preached to woman and to Adam after the fall. He tells the woman that through her seed, there would be a one who would crush Satan, though Satan would bruise him. 
That was the first gospel. That's the extent to which they had any revelation concerning Christ. It was sufficient for her to know that was the promise. She accepted it. So did Adam, and they were saved on the basis of that promise, having just sinned. What about later generations? Noah. Noah was promised that there would be a coming flood in an age that had never yet seen rain and that it would destroy the earth and he could save himself and his family if he built an ark. That was his content of promise. Abram received this promise of an inheritance and descendants. Now, what is saving faith today then? What do we have to believe today? Well, today we're saved by that same grace through the same merciful God, by the same object that is a promise. And today the promise is that there would be a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who when he died on the cross was paying the penalty for our sin, that if we accept that payment on our behalf, that will be all that is required to be our atoning sacrifice. And on that basis alone, we can be counted righteous. That is the content today. It is the fulfillment of all past content. It is the pinnacle. It is the full revelation. It is the thing God's been working toward over the ages. Now that it has been once and for all given to the saints, fully revealed, as Hebrews says, it will never be surpassed by any greater promise. It is the final culmination of all God has been doing. And that is why today that is the only content made available for salvation. I don't get to believe in the boat that Noah gets. I don't get to believe in what Adam was told. Those are are elements leading to where I am today. It is foolishness to anyone who does not have the Spirit, and yet it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved, according to Paul. The content keeps changing, growing, but the object never does. 1 John 5.9 says this, If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. John says to us today, that is the testimony we have today, the promise that we are asked to believe today concerning His Son. And here's what John says in the next verse. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The content, the promise today, is concerning His Son. The object is still the same. God the Father making a promise in His Word. Now why did God extend His mercy to us on the basis of accepting a foolish promise? Why not something else? God is a God of mercy. He could find any way He wanted to declare us righteous. Why did He choose to do it on the basis of us believing in foolish promises? Why is that the mechanism for saving men? Why doesn't he just all ask us to stand on our head for 20 minutes? Or why doesn't he ask us to run out and do this or run out and do that? Why does it have to be this method only that allows for salvation? That he would believe God and that it would then be reckoned to him as righteousness. Because it is a specific remedy for the error that brought about sin in the first place. Adam sinned when he heard a promise from God concerning a future event And rather than accept that promise and live according to it, he acted against the promise, showing a lack of faith in it. You know the promise, right? Do not eat of the fruit of this tree, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a promise concerning future events. A foolish one, if you think about it. Adam acts according to a disbelief. He disobeys. Now God has said as a result of what Adam did, he has determined that righteousness will be restored in the hearts of men 
on the basis of faith in God's promises. Another way to say it is, you need to reverse what Adam did in order to receive the righteousness Adam gave up. A demonstration of faith in God's final promise in Christ is the requirement in order to overcome a lack of faith made to God's first promise in the garden. It's a complete unity of bringing to an end what was begun by Adam. So having seen Abram here declared to be righteous by faith, let's finish by asking one final question. Is this the moment when Abram actually became a believer? We know he's already been walking with God. We know he's heard the covenant repeated already twice to him. Is this, though, the first moment when God testifying that he has become truly a man of faith, a man willing to take God's promise and believe in it? Well, there's two pieces of evidence to tell us no. This is not the moment he became a believer. First, the Hebrew construction of verse 6 does not suggest consecutive action, but rather disjunctive action. That's a fancy way of saying that verse 6 does not come after verse 5 in time. It's not a cause and effect kind of conversation in the Hebrew. It was already in effect. If I were to rewrite verse 6 with a disjunctive style, according to the Hebrew, you would write verse 6 this way. Now, Abram had believed. It's a reaffirming of what is already true, not an establishing of it for the first time. Secondly, the letter of Hebrews clearly tells us that Abram was showing faith when he departed from Ur. Verse 8 of chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 8 says this, By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So the letter to the Hebrews definitively tells us that Abram was acting in faith to God's promises even when he left Ur back in chapter 12. So if Abram's not being declared righteous here in chapter 15, but he's just already righteous, then what's the point of the statement showing up here? Why does he insert it here and not earlier? I believe the answer is to clarify to you and I, to the readers, that when Abram asked that question a moment earlier, who's going to be my descendant? i got Eleazar hanging around waiting for me to keel off, and I don't have anybody of my own. You keep telling me I'm going to have an heir. When that statement is made, Moses interjects here in verse 6 that by his faith in God's promise he was declared righteous so that we would understand that his question did not come out of a lack of faith but out of an eager longing to see that promise fulfilled. There's a huge difference in my experience between the kind of question that comes with a heart to believe and accept but simply to clarify with eagerness or anticipation versus the one that comes from the other heart that says, I don't see it happening. So I'm just here to pick apart at your story, verify that you said it, and then tell you why I don't think it's going to happen. Huge difference. So here is Moses reaffirming Abram's faith. Sometimes we will approach with questions or emotions, and sometimes our questions will suggest a lack of faith. But we need to understand something as we finish today. Faith can coincide with other natural motions, with other natural responses to our circumstances, and those two can live together. Faith, for example, and impatience, those work really well together. Eager for God's promise to come to fruition, but just tired of waiting. How about faith and ignorance? Those two go really well together. We've got lots of Christians who fit into that category to varying degrees, right? We all fit in there somewhere. Faith and ignorance. Not understanding God's purposes, questioning why it's happening the way it is, thinking that it doesn't make sense in light of the promises we accept. How about faith and sorrow? All of us know that. The world wears us down. We get trials that come our way. It tests our faith, but it doesn't reflect a lack of faith. 
just reflects the fact that we are still contending with a world of sin. And then finally, faith and doubt. Yeah, actually, those two come together sometimes. Faith and doubt. When we cannot see how God will fulfill His Word, when we don't see the end from the beginning, it just doesn't fit in our understanding. And so we come to God in that moment and we say, like the Apostle said to Christ at one point, increase our faith, which is a way of saying, I'm almost there. I just can't figure it out. And God delights to reveal Himself in greater ways to His children who are determined who are eager, who desire to see him demonstrate his faithfulness. That's when he shows up big. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for verse 6 of Genesis 15. How many poor doctrines have you set aside with that one verse? How many misunderstandings have you put an end to? How many people, Father, have seen their faith bolstered and their confidence to rely on you magnified because at some moment they were pointed to that verse and they were shown that it is by faith alone that they can be saved? How many people set aside, Father, a life of fruitless works trying to earn what is not earnable because they came to understand verse 6? And for many of us, Father, all of us now who know the truth, who have come to faith and accept your promises and are made of child of God by that faith, we still return with chapter to chapter 15, verse 6, and, and enjoy and rest in what we learn, appreciating that a man who could doubt at times, a man who could question, a man whose eagerness and, and impatience caused him to approach boldly and ask these questions, that he would be rewarded with an assurance, with a powerful display of your power to provide as you say you will. And that in his questioning, he was not criticized, he was not belittled, he was not condemned. But he was given more opportunity for the faith that he had and declared righteous on that basis. Help us, Father, to approach boldly with questions and doubts and worries and impatience and all that comes in this life. And respond as you do so often, Father. We ask that you would bolster our confidence in your word, that you would assure us of your faithfulness to your promises that you would remind us, Father, that time passes slowly, but it passes. And that one day, Father, all of this will be a faint memory. Give us eyes for eternity, Father, and hearts to listen and obey. And call us back here next week. And we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.